The day two of my best friends were married, it was a lovely day. Service was elegant, the weather held up, the sermon was short, always good. As part of the wedding party, I enjoyed escorting the couple various places around town for photos. And I also got to make a wedding toast, part of the usual groomsman duties. My toast followed the usual script. You, know, you make a few jokes at the groom's expense, imply that he's marrying way out of his league, and you wish the couple a long, happy life, and then you get out of the way. So you keep it to a couple minutes. But after I was done, my friend, whom I will just refer to as Marty, because he's guilty of sin, <laughs> made his toast. And his toast was, how should I put it? It was just a bit unhinged. Couldn't quite tell what it was. He started off the usual way by roasting the groom, but then, but then he said something nice, and then you'd expect him to just wrap it up, but that's not what happened. For five minutes, it went, it was, it, it just kept flipping back and forth between the savagery of the groom and saying something really, really sweet about the couple until he finally wrapped it up and we were just wondering what had just happened. I bring up this little anecdote because toasting, especially at a wedding or another celebration, is pretty common across cultures. Even if it is like my friend's toast, which devolved more or less into a straight roast. Different cultures have different ways of wishing each other well over a glass. Germans say Prost, which comes from a Latin word meaning, may it be well. Danes, Swedes, and Norwegians say Skull, which refers to the bowl itself, so I'm not sure about that, but okay. It refers to the drinking vessel. And the Irish say slancha, which means health. My favorite toast, though, comes from Hebrew, l'chaim, which means to life. Also made famous by that song in Fiddler on the Roof. For me, the Hebrew way of toasting is a key to understanding what's happening at the wedding at Cana. Because it is an, a weird story, isn't it? Jesus is invited to a wedding with his disciples which runs out of wine. His mother, who's unnamed, by the way, in John's Gospel, tells him this, and Jesus responds in a way that if I told my mother, if I addressed my mother that way, I'm not, I'd probably have a red mark. You know? It, yeah, mothers, how would it feel to have your child address you as woman? No, it wouldn't be very good, would it? Although in Jesus' day, addressing, addressing a woman as woman was kind of like saying ma'am. It's still a very odd way to address one's mother. It's pretty formal. It's, uh, it's not very warm. So it's, but putting that aside, he, she tells the servants, do what he, what he tells you to do. So she knows what he's going to do. Then he tells them that these servants, who are not his servants, by the way, he's a guest. And he's acting like the host, which is something typical for Jesus. He kind of shows up and takes over. He, he tells them to fill up these huge jars for purification, which would have taken some time if you know how heavy water is and how long it would take to haul. Then they draw some out and they take it to the chief waiter who tastes it. And there seems to be a mild rebuke of the groom here. He says, what's wrong with you? You say... Everyone serves the good wine first, and then after the guests are sloshed, then you bring out the the you bring out the Boone's Farm. Then, <laughs> but you've saved the really good stuff until now. 
no point does Jesus say, ta-da! There's, this is, at no point is he recognized publicly for doing this. It seems to be a strange way to start off one's ministry. There's, it's not with healing, not with exorcism, but with making wine. So what's going on? From the beginning of John's gospel, we're given the inside scoop on who Jesus is. He is the word of God. What the Father is, he is. And all things have their being through him. As one four, as chapter 1, verse 4 puts it, In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. All that the word of God does is for the purpose of enlivening and enlightening God's creation. All Jesus' words and works, then, are truly lahayim. They are for life. So it is with this first sign. On the immediate level, Jesus gives new life to the party by saving the host from shame, by saving the party from lack. To be unable to provide for one's guests, especially for a party as large as the one implied here, would be a serious breach of hospitality. So Jesus steps into the role of host to provide but the host can't provide himself. But there's far more to the sign than this. In enlivening this celebration with new wine, Jesus recalls the great feasts of the Old Testament, the plenty of the garden, the manna and the quail in Exodus, the great ritual feasts of Leviticus, the feast for all nations in Isaiah 25, among others. What all feasts have in common is that they celebrate God's gift of life. Feasts remind us of God's abundance. That God isn't a stingy God doling out a little here and a little there. But God provides us lavishly with everything we have. What we have in Jesus is an icon of the generous, perhaps even wasteful, God of the Old Testament. That's something to remember in our discontented, our exhausted age. We're at a point in time where we, like the groom and his family, might feel like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, that we don't have much left. At this point in time, many of us might feel like we ran dry a long time ago. We long for some kind of refreshment, some kind of new life. If there's something to characterize our time other than discontent and exhaustion, it's longing, indeed. Longing for something better, something new. And to our longings, Jesus gives the wine of new life. When we are scraping the bottom, Jesus makes something new. Something unexpected, dare I say, something often unnoticed. Just as the groom and the head waiter of the celebration didn't know where the new wine had come from, often we don't know where our sustenance comes from. But something comes along to remind us that there is always new life. When Sarah and I served as hospital chaplains, something curious would sometimes happen. 
One of us might be on the inpatient hospice floor visiting someone on the verge of death or with a family who had just lost a loved one. And these families were all over the map in terms of how they coped. Some were like a volcano waiting to erupt. Most were stoic and sad, at least in my experience. But in others, one lady in particular treated it like a goodbye party with a guest book and everything. After we visited patients and their families, sometimes we would hear, Rock-a-bye baby on the treetop, play softly on the floor. We stepped out into the hall. It was played on most floors of the hospital after a baby had been born. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, there was an announcement of new life. Such an announcement of new life happens here every week, not a literal baby, but that redeemed people such as us are being transformed by word and sacrament, that we are given the wine of new life. Here every week, the wine, that wine is offered. Here every week is an echo of the wedding of Cana, an echo of those great Old Testament feasts and a foretaste of the greatest feast to come. Here every week, we can raise our glass and say, Lachai, to life. As we walk through John, we will continue to see new life come, even from the most hopeless corners. God, give us eyes to see it in our lives and in our world. Thanks be to God. Amen.